Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. A bit of a holiday episode coming at you. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from um, this, oh, what is it called? Um, oh, you almost uh, had it. Strawman.com? Strawman.com, which is a... Uh, private is online a investment club. Private online investment, exactly, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You Thank you, you for filling in. How are you doing, mate? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. No complaints yourself? I'm very well. I've been looking forward to this episode. We do a combination of mailbag episodes, which we know our listeners love, and some kind of current affairs, current stuff going on, a bit of news of the week, a bit of a what does it mean, some company stuff. We don't often get a chance to sit back and go... Let's just talk about other things. Last time we had this opportunity, we talked about sources of competitive advantage. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. So do check that out if you are interested. I really enjoyed that conversation. Our listeners did too. Mate, we are going to just take half a step back. We're going to talk about some bigger picture questions that pertain to investing and to business in general. Just, uh, we're not going to do, it's kind of macro as in big picture, but it's not macro as in macroeconomics or or news of the day or data of the day, which is kind of nice to just stop sometimes and take half a step back. Mate, um, I wanted to start with a conversation you brought up a couple of weeks ago with news that Apple had decided to bring its business back to the US. I'm not even sure if it's in whole or in part, but its chip manufacturing is going to now be done, at least in part, unless you know otherwise, in the United States. And there's a really significant trend back towards what they're calling reshoring or onshoring or whatever it's been called, the, the kind of the, the opposite of offshoring, uh, and trying to work out what the, I suppose, implications are for business, for investors. What some of these big, big thing kind of deal changes mean uh, for us as we think about business as we go into 2023. Just maybe maybe give us a bit of a, a quick sum of what the Apple news is and then maybe what you think about it, mate. Yeah, so Apple's onshoring its uh, uh, chip manufacture uh, for its phones. And is that all of it? Do you know? I'm actually not sure. I'm basing it okay. off a headline that I saw. Yeah, right. Um, it's not entirely surprising. I think to sort of understand it all, you've actually got to go back to when we first, when the offshoring boom first happened. And, you know, it was, the world was a different place. Um, people, countries got along a little bit better, or at least mm. differently. And um, there were big markets that were untapped that were very, very low cost. And right. we shifted our production. It's, it's factory in China. Yeah. Everything yeah. is made in China. Um, and there's big structural reasons for, for why that went, mm. went on. There was big advantage. So what's, what's changed? Well, one, obviously the geopolitical situation has changed. We realize that like when, when you're, I don't want to use the word enemies, but you know, someone you're not yeah. exactly seeing eye to eye to yes, with, yes. At, at the moment uh, is, is, is where all of the, you know, the stuff that you need to run your economy is sort of coming from. That's, it's a problem. You know, the other, the other dynamic is that um, there's a, a real automation wave. So, I mean, I think Tesla's probably best shown this with their gigafactories and what they're doing there. And it's sort of like, you can do a lot with very few people with the right kind of capital and machinery. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I imagine that as we go forward, why it's significant with Apple is because it's Apple. It's the, you know, the <laughs> world's biggest sort of company. <laughs> yep. But I do think it sets a precedent and, uh, and the start of a trend where we'll see more <laughs> and more and more businesses do this for a couple of reasons, mainly for a strategic sort of security kind of reason. Um, but also because it'll just the, the economic advantages of offshoring aren't going to be as significant as, significant as they once were. And tell me why. What is what has changed in your mind that makes this different? 
I'm trying to, I want to think of a way to say it without using the word robot. <laughs> Go on. Say <laughs> robot. Live, live a little bit dangerously. Come on. It's a word that's kind of a bit, a bit loaded. Mm. But I, just, I guess I generally mean more uh, automation in, and efficiencies in how we do things in a, in a factory manufacturing mm. kind mm. of setting. Mm. It's, a, it's amazing. I mean, some of these machines go so fast, you've got to slow it down because it's too fast for the human eye to see. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of like you don't, you don't need an army of very low, like, dare I say, underpaid workers to, to get the same outcome. And you get the strategic benefit of it. I mean, Apple, think about this from Apple's point of view. This is different from, you know, the, the Bob's local corner store deciding to get his milk off someone else. Th- this is... This is a huge operation. They make the, the most popular consumer device on the planet, I dare I say, in history. It's going to cost them a squillion. It's going to take years and years and years. It's going to have all the risks that any project delivery and, and you know, thing will, reco- will, will have. Um, and, they've, and they've decided to go that way. And I, not a decision made lightly. And I think every, I mean, it's, the, the writing's on the wall and people have been talking about this for a little while now. And so I think, I think uh, expect more of it. Yeah, I think it's right. It's um, it's a. It, it, I think you know. There's there's bigger one. I guess the bigger question, really, too, mate, is not even so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a little bit bigger again. Not even so much the the onshoring or the reshoring. It's the fact that the trend friendshoring, by the way, is the is the term friendshoring. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, gotta, so it's yeah, not yeah. necessarily going it back to domestic market, but at least to someone who's friendlier. <laughs> yeah. But it's not even so much that. I mean, I, I guess the the bigger thing, and this is kind of the work from home conversation we had oh, months ago now is the change to the co- the cost base the the production processes you're right robots quotes have been around forever you know the the original production line at Henry Ford's place became an almost you know largely automated production line these mm-hmm. days that that trend is not new and it's been continuing to roll out but to your point when you can <laughs> I'm going to, I just keep saying robots because you brought it up. But when the robots can do the work, it doesn't matter where the factory is. I mean, yeah, there's rent at some level and maybe the cost of energy, but at, at some point... So, so I guess my point is it's the change in manufacturing methods and what it means for not just where we do stuff, but actually what we do. I mean, that, that whole idea, you can take... You know, you, you can kind of excise the last 50 years and say, right, when things start today, what, how are they going to be done? What does it mean for the labor force? What does it mean for the companies that we own? What does it mean for the way we invest? Who's going to win and lose from that? I think there are some oh, really, dude. really, really big questions that, that come from this sort of stuff. I mean, there's no need, you know, it's almost, you know I'll, use, I'll use China a different example. Uh, actually, I'll use, I'll use Africa. Africa has gone from no telecommunications straight to mobile. You know, they, they haven't bothered implementing cable or, or PC because... You know the, the the affordable devices. The way we're moving, has that they they're moving. They go straight from nothing to mobile. Uh, India doing something similar in a lot of the a lot of the, um, the regional areas of and rural areas of India. Mm. The, kind of skipping whole areas. You know these days when you start to make something, it's not a question of where can I find the workers to do it cheapest. It's which robots should I choose. I think that's got a really really massive impact. We mentioned fast brick robotics a couple of weeks ago. I'm talking about brickworks. Mm. Um, mm you know that the, it really does change how we do what we do it's it's, it's huge, it, look right? it's 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 easy to sort of sound hyperbolic with some of this stuff and i mm. i'll admit i do get carried away with technology and its its potential but we're not there's differences between sort of forecasting something that might mm. and could happen it would be wonderful like say nuclear energy <laughs> right yeah. like oh nuclear fusion i mean you know limitless free mm. free power that that would be great it's always sort of been yep. the joke is it's always been 30 years away type thing 
Um, but a lot of these things that we're talking about with modern manufacturing, this is here and now. We don't yeah. we don't have to guess yeah. at what might or that's might right, not happen. Right. It's actually right. it's actually here and it's getting radically mm. faster. And I think we also need to broaden our definition of what what we mean when we say robot. And I think something that happened recently, which was just truly mind blowing, was um, the Chat GPT uh, prototype mm, mm, that was released, mm. uh, which is a, a AI chatbot. It comes from the guys at OpenAI, um, and you would have seen a lot if you're on social media, like people just asking questions, and this thing giving a perfectly erudite, sophisticated answer. Mm. So really, when you when you boil it all down, without going too far down that rabbit hole, you've got something that uh, understands contextually what you mean when you ask for something in the way that a human would ask in the way if i would say hey scott i need you to dig up some files on this and see if you can find you know this 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 mm -hmm. um uh, and we'll deliver you insanely high quality stuff this is a prototype there's already another version on on the table for next year which is apparently 500 times better wow so what is, what does this do this potentially disrupts teaching now i've got an infinitely mm. patient tutor Who's the smart <laughs> yeah. in the world? Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who can explain to me a thousand different correct ways how differential equations work? Yep. Now I've got someone. Now you've got people programming, basic entry level programmers doing production grade mm -hmm. software by saying, "I want something on the screen that looks like this." Oh no, a bit more to yeah. the left. Oh, okay, I want this thing to link to that and need this. I need a database for that, and it, mm -hmm. it becomes this assistant that is that is crazily powerful and just mm -hmm. leverages each of us a hundredfold. But that, to your original point, where the long run up here, but where I'm coming from is this radically changes the workforce. Yeah. I mean, think about it. all call center jobs are gone, you know, self-driving, mm -hmm. all driving jobs are gone. You're already talking yeah. up to something yeah. like 18% of the workforce. Then you've, then you've got um, oh, it's just, it's anything that is, we, we used to think that like the machines will do all sort of like the mechanical kind of stuff. Now they're <laughs> yeah, doing all yes, the, yes. the thinking kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. And yeah. not it's like, oh, isn't that cute? It's come up with some interesting answers. Like, no, <laughs> insanely good answers <laughs> that are rapidly um, iterating on themselves and getting better and better and better. And yeah, anyway, it just it kind of it kind of blows my mind. So mm -hmm. I, I <laughs> and, and Howard Marks made this point actually, and we talked about it at the time. I think it was almost a year ago now, but he had a, a memo out which was talking about the pace of change in markets and investing and in underlying technology has always sort of been there, mm. but it's really it, that pace has accelerated. It's really J curving. So it's sort of like, yeah, there was some definitely massive technological progress, you know, from 1900 to 1920, but the leaps that we're making these days on a decade long basis, I mean, it's getting almost impossible to predict what's going to happen in three to five years time because this stuff's moving so fast. And uh, yeah, so imagine, imagine with, let's just take the Motley Fool, for example, right? Let's yeah. say all of a sudden spin up a thousand of these bots and write me an article on a company that you think is yeah. really good. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to downplay our industry or what we do, but I, no, I dare say yeah. it gets to a yeah. point where it's like, does it actually insanely well? Mm -hmm. um, especially if you can say, well, it's a dollar a year, right? And so you've got these yeah, massively exactly. deflationary aspects on it as well. Yeah. How, how's that for like you know a ton of hyperbole and <laughs> and wild horizon gazing? No, but it's true, right? I think I think that's you know I there are some really challenging um, there are some really challenging issues to actually deal with as a result of that for it you know for investors for business people the whole the whole lot of how we do what we do um, it, it matters because think about the companies that will potentially win and lose as a result. Think about the jobs we could be doing or not doing as a result. Um, 
you know, at a societal level, you know, the we've talked before about the the four hour work week, right? The um, how many jobs are left? I mean, what mm. what can't be done by a computer? The the number of those things starts to reduce really, really meaningfully and really quickly. And yeah. you start to ask about what does that what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's a really challenging thing for all of us as an investor, mate. Do 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 you? allow for that have you allowed for that do you start to think about that do you increasingly think about that what does it mean yeah it's, you can't not think about it right because it's going to touch everything and, and mm. i'll stress that this is probably something that you know it's, it it'll play it, in a historical perspective it'll play out in the blink of an eye from living through it perspective yeah. it'll feel like it's sort of you know yeah, right. it, it, there, there is a there is a profound difference there um but yeah it's it's you i definitely try to think about with this company, is it the disruptor or potentially the disruptee? <laughs> is this the one that's yeah. going to be leapfrogged with, with some of this stuff? Um, and it, as I, I make the point, it's just getting harder and harder and harder. What's, mm. what's been really fascinating about this stuff, and ChatGPT is a good example, is so much mm. of this stuff is not open source purely, but sort of the, the technology is widely available. And so I know when we first at Strawman started talking to a bunch of small cap tech companies, they'd often mm. use the word machine learning yeah, and sure artificial know, yeah. intelligence with what they were doing you know it mm -hmm. might be some back office enterprise software or whatever it is and you kind of think honestly you know i think you're great and i'm sure you've got some really smart developers <laughs> but you're competing against silicon valley and google and the rest of it I mean, what mm. what are you what what breakthroughs are you really using in ai <laughs> and i i call yeah. bs on on yeah. on the ai capability of 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 your software until I realized by sp speaking to them, is actually, oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing anything with the AI except pointing it at the problem. And that's, that's what's so super powerful about this kind of stuff is you just, it's just a platform to leverage that you, you can do in the same way that a banana importer and the manufacturer of tea towels can all use email, right? It's just, <laughs> it's that yeah, wide, right. it's that yes, widespread yes. kind of thing. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, man, but it's just, it's every now and again, a technology comes along. And this one was a bit of a sleeper, I think. And you just kind of think it's, it's beyond all of like, oh, that's cool to mm -hmm. know how is everyone in the world not having a super smart, articulate AI that knows you, anticipates you. I think probably the best fictional analog here to use here is her. I don't know if you've seen. Um, yes. Great, great movie. Great movie. Right. And such a good movie. Uh, I think it kind of gets it right in that in that aspect, whether or not they become mm, self aware mm, mm. and <laughs> other things happen. <laughs> right. But but yeah, but yeah. It, it's in the same way that we've you know someone in Nigeria, mo mm. most people in Nigeria have access to a mobile phone. Mm, mm. You know, you, you it's very very uh, accessible. So mm -hmm. and and they it itself is it's not just the technology, but it's the technology that it it now enables us to leverage in the same way that they use the open AI constructs and stuff when what, what they figured out with alpha go to develop alpha fold, which now cracked probably the biggest problem in biochemistry that ever was. You can just an anticipate and predict the correct folding of any amino chain. I don't want to get off the rails here, but that is an insanely hard Let's thing not. to do, but, it, <laughs> but, yes. but it, it, it has just leapfrogged mm. synth synthetic biology mm. and just general biology, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah. A, a quantum leap forward type thing and it will do that to other industries um just because it's a it's a more efficient way to work when you can say i, I the, the jobs of the future i dare say we're really going off into the the wild mm. blue yonder here is is ones which will be people who are good at coordinating ai who are who are good at working with ai to to achieve a certain goal 
Um, Why did the AI itself do that? Though I, 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 every time someone says, "Oh, the thing," you know, be do the programming. Well, the, the chatbots are that good. How much? How much coordinating might be fifteen minutes a year? I mean, I'm. I don't disagree yeah. with you, mate. But I. But I got to say, I'm, even as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, there'll be far less jobs. Yeah. But but how much? How much? But even even that someone's good at doing. Well, what does it mean to coordinate AI? Like it's ask it the right questions. I mean, the, the users will do that. At some point, you know, you you. you you plug the pieces in together. You say you three things work together to do to, to do this job. Uh, that might be as, as much as needs to be done. It, it, it's a really interesting question. Oh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, as I said, whatever you're into or interested in, let, let's say you like computer mm-hmm. games. It's a huge, massive market. I've always liked uh, first-person shooters. I'm going to sit down with my AI companion, my chat box, who's an expert in in every programming language and every game design and all of this kind of stuff because they've read all the material on it. And just say, listen, okay, I want to start off with this. Now make that a bit bigger, a bit smaller. Mm. I, things that would normally take a coder to yes, really right, figure right, out right, and right. layer, it's, it's a, the amount of work. Like a tier mm. one game has 100 people work on it for a year. Like it, these are big yeah. projects. Yeah. And when you can get a computer to put that together mm-hmm. and just understand contextually in just normal language, not not like so there's, there's, there's sort of like there's machine language, there's basic uh, – DOS, then there's mm-hmm. there's programming languages that sit on top of it. I'm well getting beyond what I understand here. But <laughs> but everything that we do with software is in is in layers. Mm-hmm. And this effectively adds another layer on top of that. But one that yeah. just opens up the the miracle of coding <laughs> and developing and software programming to anyone. Whereas before it was just sort of open to people who knew how to speak the language of C or whatever happened mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. would happen mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. It's just a game changer. And and it, I, I definitely think it it it, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things. I think that when you say what's the future look like, it's probably no one's going to guess exactly what it looks like. It'll just be mm, very different. Mm, mm. I, I I'm I'm trying to think about investing, mate. I mean, on one hand, I'm almost I almost want to say uh, I, it's everything and nothing, right? Part, part of me is thinking, what do you do? The other part of me is like, maybe just nothing because it's too hard, and then I'm not sure if that's a cop out or not. Like, you know, mm. what do you change? You know, even to your point about the disruptor or the disruptee, at some point, how long does disruption even last? I mean, you know, you can probably disrupt the disruptor quickly too. Um, yeah. Trying to find a I mean, the, the, the we spoke spoke a things are moving at a faster ago. pace. Well, that's what I'm thinking. So, what's long term investing in that environment? I mean, it it, it, it really hard. does. Even even the idea of even the idea of allocating capital in that world. Mm becomes a really challenging feature because a business would normally build on and then maintain a competitive advantage for years leading on to decades. Um, you know, what, what is long-term investing? If, 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 if computerization happens so quickly, what if you, even you think or you see now, even if you are the disruptor, yeah. how, long, how long can that remain the case before someone else disrupts you? I think, I think normal business dynamics will still hold true. It'll, it'll be the pace of change within that. So there'll be natural shelling points that just mm. like dominant network dominant entities appear and probably sustain a right, little bit. Right, right. And maybe the, maybe the, the rates of return on that as investor aren't fantastic. Yeah. Um, but this is the other thing to note. There is, there is always opportunity and change and mm. There, mm. there will be, I mean, 20 years ago, some of the biggest companies in the world didn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect in the next 20, when we're talking and doing this podcast in 2042, the top five stocks on the NASDAQ may not have even been, you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't even recognize yes, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You, 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 
yeah, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm, I'm keen, to, <laughs> keen to see which way it all, all goes. Oh, I am too. But part of me is thinking, it just feels very hard. Um, we, we shall see. Mate, let's move on, if we can, to a very, very different topic. I wanted to, I wanted to discuss... I, we are, as investors, um, we talked about fund managers a little while ago. And we talked about the idea of a fund manager having to kind of placate their investors as well as trying to invest well. And those things are often not only difficult or different, they're often completely at odds with each other. The time you want more money thrown at you is when you have a situation where markets are cheap and you have a great opportunity to use that money. Now, either the fund may have done poorly because it's just not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's acyclical, it's high conviction, as we said the other day, or uh, it's just a case of when the markets are low, everybody's just pessimistic about investing. No one's saying, hey, can you please invest my money? They're all saying, I'm not giving you my money, the markets are down. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when the, when the best opportunities exist can often be at the same time or similar time as um, when, when it's hardest to find money. One of the things that I think most investors have thought about at one point, particularly those of us still for a quid, is the idea of permanent capital. What if, what if they couldn't take the money away? And now, if you think about that, think about someone like a Berkshire Hathaway that kind of invests its own capital now it's got insurance floats so it's not just its own capital sole pats i think about those investment conglomerates of of sorts um even i guess the list investment companies though they tend to be kind of closet indexes or etfs it's not quite the same story but i kind of have every now and again thought about what would i do if i had permanent capital if i had a a, a business or a source of money that i knew couldn't be taken off me that i could invest for seriously long periods of time that i could compound effectively forever um it doesn't even necessarily need to change anything. Most of the money I'm hopefully saving is permanent, for, at least for my lifetime. Uh, so it is permanent to some degree, but I'm adding small amounts regularly. And it, it's just one of those, you know, every fund manager wants permanent capital. We've seen a lot of funds move into the ETF space in part because once the ETF exists, not index ETF, but a general one, these units don't go away. They can only be bought and sold to somebody else, which is perfect mm. if you're a fund manager, right? It's like, give me the money, but you can't take it ever back. You can sell it to someone else, but mm. the, the money I've got doesn't change. The money I've got in my fund stays the same. How do you think about permanent capital? What what observations does that kind of ri- raise for you that impact or don't impact the way you invest? Um, I, well, I said on a recent pod that I I think my and other private investors' greatest edge is a is a capacity to look a little further ahead mm. than most people, and you need patient capital if not permanent capital <laughs> to do to do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so so yeah i i i i think about it but it's sort of like um in terms of an allocation thing it doesn't really change anything because one of the great things about this capital is it may be permanent but it's still highly liquid and fluid i can like the capital itself can be can be permanent but it can it can sit on the back of it can jockey on different horses <laughs> along the way so I, I guess right. my, my, my position is always the best risk reward allocation of my capital as it stands today. Mm-hmm. It might be different mm-hmm. tomorrow, it might be different a year from now, but that, that will always be the case. It's, so I, I, investors can invest two different, well, lots of different ways. There are two major sources of returns, right? Well, well sorry, two different, um, uh, What's the right word? I don't know. Two, two different types of returns. We'll get to sources of returns in a minute, but types of returns. You can get capital growth or you can get income, right? I don't think there's anything else other than that. You're either getting cash or you're, or you're earning something that becomes more valuable in a market sense. Mm. And I've often thought about, you know, what if I could buy a business on the private market, a private business that because it's not publicly listed, 
was selling for a cheaper price, cheaper multiple. That's almost always true. So you yep. can normally buy, if you buy a private business, that's why a lot of businesses list because you get a higher multiple on the market because of like liquidity you talked about. But if I could find a business that I could, you know, that, that, you know, it's, it's all pipe dream stuff because nothing's this simple. But if you could buy a business that say, I don't know, say five times earnings just for the fun of it. Mm. That's an earnings yield of 20%. So I get a, I get a 20% return on my money. And that money would, would come through every, and again, let's, let's really make it very, very simple, right? This business doesn't grow. So I'm getting a 20% return every single year. I own this business every year from now till as far as I, as I want to think, I get a 20% return on the money I put up up front. And then I can, so in the sense that's permanent capital, it's, it's, a, it's a business op that I own. Let's say it's a news agent for the fun of it. And I could take the earnings from that news agent every single year and do whatever I want with it. Build my, build my investing and, and, and kind of, you know, wealth empire on the back of that sort of thing versus putting money into, you know, the market and getting, I don't know, a 5% yield from, from you know, if I'm lucky from, from a, a dividend paying stock, or maybe I might get, you know, 10%, 12% annual returns. The idea of buying that, that kind of permanent provider of capital that every year spits off something I can then go and invest and invest and invest feels pretty attractive to me. Uh, by the same token, if it didn't pay any income out at all, but I was building something that someone was going to pay a lot more for in a few years' time, like an Amazon, for example, had it still been private, Bezos would have been creating this private business that was worth a squillion dollars. Even if he never took a single dollar of dividends out of it, he's creating real and, and, and ongoing value. And on one hand, I'm, I'm struck by, this, by the feeling this is no different to, as you say, investing on the market, getting the return whichever way it comes and just redeploying that money. On the other hand, the idea of... of you know, there's there's something about the income stream. And again, I think about Berkshire, for example, that every year gets the cash from all of its wholly owned entities, right? They, they make um, a whole lot of things, but let's pick the um, demandable home kind of, you know, removable home, uh, mobile home thing. Every year, Buffett says, you you don't have to, I'm not going to look after your business at all. But what I do, what I do require you to do is send me the, send me the money. If you want to invest in something else, if you, you know, at a business level, you got to ask me. Otherwise, send me the cash because I'm going to use that cash and I'm going to reinvest that cash. And that's been a beautiful, you know, Buffett's a genius. I'm not Buffett, you're not Buffett. But, you know, he, that has been a genius strategy of him is just investing things that throw off a heap of cash and go and use that cash to find off things, find things that throw off even more cash again. The challenge of owning public assets, you know, shares or whatever else is we can't access all the, all the, all the invest, all the cash, right? I can't go and say, Woolies, hey, um, don't invest in anything else. Don't, don't buy anything else. Don't keep any of the profits for yourself. Give me all the cash. And I would use that for something I think is more useful to me because you're a cash generating machine. Don't go on open masters. Don't go on, you know, do just just give me the money. And I guess that's that's where I, uh, you know, the, the, the full access to the, the money that's being thrown off is something that most private investors simply don't get access to because we don't own the whole company. And for better or worse, companies are keeping that money and doing other things with it. Yep. And that's, that's why having faith in management is so important i've often said there's really two jobs for senior management one is sort of setting the culture that's a very broad term but i think it kind of sets you know you set the direction you set the north star you set the culture of hopes dreams of the organization as airy fairy as, as that kind of sounds but the other one is capital allocation sort of above all else and it really is looking at a at that through a lens of opportunity cost and and you know maximized risk reward um so that's all true, but I think what's interesting, I think one of the, the, the key distinctions you make when you talk about a private versus a public company is that on the private market, because you don't have that liquidity, the only thing to support value is the cash that gets thrown off. 
and in fact, you can get some very interesting opportunities that that are there. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh. What's my point? <laughs> what's my point? <laughs> uh, I like. You're not reliant on a market to realize value, I think is the point yes. I'm trying to make. Yes, 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 yes. And while that's a different set of circumstances on the market, I think it's always a really good touch point because if you always try and look at buying something that is of good quality and uh, is at a good price, as Buffett says, that you'd be happy to own if the market closed for 10 years. I think it's a, it's a really good thing to keep in mind because regardless of what the craziness of the market will bring, it does give you some kind of fundamental underpinning that here's sort of a maximum downside because under the worst set of all circumstances, this thing delists and just runs for, for cash, but it's not reliant on the good nature of shareholders to tip more money in or to raise more money from investment mm, banks mm. or to go to the, the, to the, the debt market and, and borrow more cash. Uh, there is something tangible and f- uh, about that fundamental value that is there. Mm, mm, um, yeah, I've I've probably I've probably completely muddied my point, but do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, no, I do. I, and, and look, it's it's a it's it's a kind of a it's only a theoretical question at one level. I mean, unless, unless I want to go out and buy myself a business with a, with a really nice cash yield of something, um, I've just always been. Okay, and it also depends, probably depends on how much how much you know what what other investment opportunities you've got, um, and maybe it, maybe it talks to my my own approach as an investor or my, my, my preference as an investor but the idea of being able to take the free cash flow generation of a business and use it to buy other cash flows it's it's just I guess it's incumbent on the businesses maybe maybe I don't know if, you know people often say oh Australia's terrible their dividends are too high they don't reinvest in the, their own growth that's you know it's terrible the crank for it Credit credit system is broken because we incentivize that. Part of me is actually not sure. Well, I, I was going to say, say the same thing because mm. for exactly that reason, ironically, because it's like unless you're really, really sure you got a better use for the money, mm. give it to me. But then, it's your point, your point about management is also a really, really good one, which is if you trust managers to do their jobs. You know, Buffett ironically is saying, "I'm going to invest. I'm going to buy these business. I want them to throw me all the cash they've got. I'm going to use it myself. Thank you very much." And then Buffett says, but you're not getting any of the money. <laughs> you know, trust me, I'm going to reinvest that money. I'm not going to give you a dividend. I want the dividend from my investee businesses, mm. but I'm going to keep my cash, thank you very much, and buy. And it's been successful for a very long time. So he's right. But there is that, that almost in itself, the way he requires or, or, or you know, uses the incoming cash versus his approach to dividend policy is almost that entire thing writ large right there. You know, I, well, he, I like he's obviously was, right if he's Buffett. Uh, if, if, Yes, if you've got yes. that ability to, to yes, continue exactly. to redeploy, that's the key key thing here. But I wonder if we trust, I, 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 at a market level, I, I'm still not sure that, I, I wonder what would happen if companies were required, and it's not going to happen, obviously, it's a thought experiment, but if they were required to pay all their free cash flow, right? Rather than, or not even free cash flow, or, you know, almost for, they're operating cash flow, right? Some, some element of, you know, if, if, you, if they couldn't just say, I'm only going to give you half the profits, I'll keep the rest for growth. Uh, you know, some businesses would have been horribly, horribly, horribly kneecapped by that. Amazon's mm. a great example, right? Mm. Others who've just wasted and wasted and wasted and wasted money for uh, forever, you know, um, that group, I think, would have been much better having get the straighteners of you must pay this out in dividends. Yep. The franking system has probably been really helpful for investors who otherwise would have suffered massive, massive reinvestment shortfalls. Um it- it doesn't. It doesn't change. It doesn't change the capital allocation process, decision process, or at least it shouldn't. 
except that it, it does enforce more discipline because if I've got, if I'm already giving away, you know, I've got a 50% payout ratio, I'm mm. giving half of mm. my net earnings away in dividends. Yeah. You know, that project that I, I, I want to invest in, it really has to clear a higher hurdle. So it does yeah. enforce, I think, a good bit of discipline. Of, you know, often the worst thing for a business and one that's not well managed, and let's face it, there's a lot of mediocrity that's out there, yeah. is to have pockets full of cash. Because, yeah. you know, hope springs eternal. And a, lot of, a lot of, I don't want to be unfair here, but a lot of business mm. success, success comes down to luck, right place, right time. Mm. Company has a good bit of fortune, fills up their coffers, and then thinks that they've got the Midas touch and goes out there and invests in 100 other projects, ends up blowing it all up. So you're right, when you're talking about Warren Buffett, okay, fair point. When you're talking about the average <laughs> manager, <laughs> <laughs> Dividends are great because it just it ensures that there is at least some real tangible value creation and a bigger a bigger hill to climb for for those capital allocation decisions those investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Do you, as an investor, I'm trying to think through. So <laughs> this is this is therapy for me, right? I'm trying to think through that as an investor, and the answer is obviously it depends, as it always is. I wonder how, and, and really what it comes down to, it comes back to return on equity, right? Return on invested capital. Mm-hmm. That idea of if you're using it well, keep using it well. If you're not using it well, pay it back to me. Yeah. But I'm thinking through as an investor, I love dividends hitting my bank account. Like I really, I'm not, I'm not a dividend, I don't invest for dividends, but gee, I like them. You know, it's, it's a, and, and I get, and I guess like, great, that's adding up in my bank account. Now I'm going to go and buy more shares of things I like best. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like, I like the Buffett-esque Opportunity. I'm no Buffett, but I like the Buffett's opportunity to say, I'm going to put money in that thing and that thing. Yeah, you don't have to reinvest the dividends in the same company. Correct. Except that if you, they don't pay dividends, that you are by definition reinvesting cash flows in those exact businesses that otherwise could have been paying out dividends. Mm-hmm. And so part of me is thinking, I want to find great companies and let them, a la Berkshire. I, I should disclose I own shares. I think everyone knows that by now, but I think I mentioned it yet. Um, like, I, you know, I want a buffer to do that. And don't, please, Warren, don't give me any money. Please, please keep it. I know you've got things you can do with it. But, you know, mm-hmm. knock yourself out. But on the other hand, part of me is thinking, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much faith we should put or, or I am putting in my investee companies that, you know, otherwise should be paying out more of that, more of that money, whether I'd be better off if they did or, or whether I should be putting more money into those businesses that generate that cash flow just because it lets me, you know, manage that money. I guess I'm... I'm arrogantly thinking I'm better than them. I, I'm going to reinvest better than that company's going to reinvest its own cash flows. Mm. But we've seen so much value destruction over time. Uh, and again, the high return on equity companies don't need all that much additional capital to go and do their thing. That The growth comes as a function of cost of goods sold and, and a bit of you know um, higher wages. They don't need to reinvest the profits per se because like if you get a return on investment within one year, you use, you use operating cash flow to do what you're doing. It's only those businesses that say, no, no, leave the money with me. I'm going to invest it now for a multi-year return. Trust me. I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I think about that, that sort of scenario. I'm always glad for companies to keep money and spend it. Um, the massive proviso there being that they're, 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 cap, they're, they're good capital allocators. But that, that, is how, that is all the value. That is how all of the value is created. Right? And that's where you get some really interesting opportunities on the ASX where companies who have um, spent a lot of uh, capital expenditure, CapEx as it's called, um, on new plant and equipment, new machinery, new operations, new whatever, new sales teams, mm, new mm. geographic location, whatever it is, and obviously mm. all that expense just dampens things because you know <laughs> you're not. Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't had a chance to do anything yet. You got to put all that together, and sometimes these some these um, 
heavy machinery kind of place, it can take a while to kind of gear up. And the market right, just sees right. disappointing kind of returns. But what, what right. you occasionally see is you see a business is like, actually, more or less, the existing business has just gone along very fine. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Margins have compressed, but for the exact mm-hmm. right reason. And yeah. now that spring is loaded and is about to pounce <laughs> as those new operations start seeing throughput. And all of a sudden, oh, where'd all this extra money came from? And it's like, it's the overnight success that was 10 years in the making kind of thing. And and I, as a shareholder, am more than happy for you to keep your money if you're able to deliver those those very positive outcomes. Because that, that, again, is where all of the value is created. And the answer, the, the question for management should be is like, look, unless we can't confidently get more than, say, 10% or what a reasonable investor might expect just by, you know, yeah. an average diversified yeah, yeah. ETF. If we can't do that, then we're not adding value. And yeah, you, you have it. If we have a good idea, we might change our minds and we'll present it to you and we'll lay out the plan and, you know, and, and hopefully we're, we're on to the right thing. But that that is always the lens that should be looked through. And is return on equity then almost by definition – at least for a profitable company, the best the best yardstick of that? It's a really good yard. I mean, you, I always notice that when you're looking at a company and you think, oh, it's actually mm, a pretty so. consistently high ROE. Um, it's probably grown in a pretty capital light kind of manner. Mm. ROE can, there's a few, like, like all of these metrics, there's a few things to watch. Sometimes return on incremental equity is the better measure. That's what I like, actually. Return on incremental invested capital is my favorite. Yeah, yeah because it's really, it's, it's getting rid of the sunk cost, I suppose, of existing mm. investments. Mm. But- but anyway, that's that's going way way too far down the rabbit hole. It, it's look, I've always said investing is a holistic process, and you you look at a whole range of different data sets, and hopefully it weighs up on the scales effectively. But but as an isolated metric, ROE is a pretty good one. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, I want to finish off by talking about. I guess I've, I've been fascinated recently about what I'm going to call sources of investment returns. And I think it's one of those things that investors, maybe, maybe people don't think about it, maybe you and I obsess about it because we do this for a quid, I'm not entirely sure. But um, when you think about it, this is, I've said before, I'm sure on the podcast, and you know, I've talked about it privately, um, you know, we talk about tech companies. And I've said, you know, there's no reason tech companies have to outperform just because they do. There's no even reason that high growth businesses need to outperform the market. Because it depends on what the price was to start with. Amazon that was priced at $5,000 a share in 1997 is still underwater. The fact it was priced at, you know, cents on the dollar in 1997 means you made a squillion dollars. But it, it's, you know, the returns don't come from the company's results themselves. They come from the investor's ability to effectively find mispriced opportunities. And the extent that tech has done really well over years is because I would argue, and you can disagree, that investors have consistently mispriced those shares, which is what gives that opportunity. So I wanted to I wanted to kind of I'm gonna throw three things at you and we'll see if there's any more you can come up with and we'll we'll see how we go and then we'll have a chat about them. The first source of and they, they, there's they're all kind of the same thing in different ways, but different ways of contextualizing it. The first is buying something that the market hates that isn't quite as bad as the market thinks. So this is the this is the classic value cigar, but you know if you've got a, a business trading at five times earnings and maybe it's worth eight times earnings, that's still a sixty percent upside. So that's you know some market hates, but it isn't quite that bad. You can get back to the tech example, buy something that the market loves, 
but doesn't love enough that you know despite how what some of these lofty and amazon's always look stupidly expensive right right through didn't have a p at all then a p was a hundred or a thousand or whatever it was and you can do really really well if it's simply the market loves it but it's even better than the market thinks and again you get the opportunity there maybe the other one is just a straight up misunderstanding of the business so-called hidden value we've talked about i think we might talk about a couple of weeks ago a business called uh, uh m2 telecommunications when it was when it was originally actually two in telecommunications when it was originally uh, it was bought by focus in the end but it had a pe that looked high but it was high because it had a lot of non-cash charges and the market kind of looked at the uh, well the market isn't never one single thing as you've said before but broadly it was a PE of, I think I spent 14 or something at the time, which wasn't particularly expensive, but about three points of that was due to amortization of some non-cash charges. So you look at it without that and you go, this thing's trading at 11 times earnings. That's really cheap. The other one in telecommunications was Vocus, where it had spent three odd years laying cables, not making much revenue, cost after cost after cost after cost, looked like a terrible business. All of a sudden, it stopped putting like cables in the ground and started selling access to those cables. And it was just overwhelmed with an absolute gusher of cash. So there's there's so that they're kind of the I'll say misunderstood or hidden value, whatever you want to call that group. Have I missed any big categories, mate? Do you think of of kind of where investment returns can come from? I know I've mentioned it a few times, but I'd also add a time arbitrage to that as well. Yeah, right. You know, I, I think it's it's a painful yeah. way for outsized return, but but it's a good one because it kind of by definition means you, you're you're too early. Yeah, and and I know the old saying is too early is indistinguishable <laughs> from being wrong. Yes. But I actually wrote about this on the Strawman blog earlier this mm-hmm. year. But but where where it's different is if the ultimate return is big enough. So if something goes sideways for three years and then doubles, it's still a fantastic return. Yes, right? exactly. It's yeah. not a question of you know it, that it has to happen in a gradual increase. It'd be fantastic right. if it did, of course. But often often it doesn't. Mm. So the the you do get rewarded for that patience, assuming that your your ultimate um, thesis proves broadly true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think that's another factor. Mm. Can we just call that patience, or is there something more specific in that? I, if I say time arbitrage, it sounds more sophisticated. Well, that's why. That's why I was probably the better way of saying okay. it. Okay, that's why I, I was. I was trying to think it through and think about. Yeah, I, I trying to make it simple, but also just that sense of is, is there more than that? So let's go back to that, mate. Let's let's start with let's start with the 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 market hates it a little bit less than a little bit more than it should. Yeah, these are these are the places value investors air quotes. I hate these terms, but you know, just mm. to to help people kind of contextualise it. When people talk about value investments, they're normally talking about low PE. So, in other words, um, the market's not paying much for the level of earnings that they're looking for. They tend to be businesses that aren't particularly sexy or popular. And generally speaking, and again, these are horrible generalisations. The investor is thinking this might be the best business in the world, but it's not quite that bad. And the up, the upside is it's the old 80 cent dollar. If I can buy a dollar for 80 cents, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. When it gets to a dollar, I'm going to take the money and run. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you that sort of investor? Have you made those sort of investments before? And what have you looked at or looked for? Yeah, I, I have. I'm not, but I have. And it's. Right. I think everyone sort of dabbles of different kinds of experiences <laughs> and, yep. and and the rest of it. So yeah, I mean, like like any approach, it's got its it's got its merits. Um, but you know the lesson there is that sometimes the market will just never realize it, mm. which, which is why I think over the years I have biased myself increasingly towards growth because at the end of the day, whatever craziness the market brings to it, it, it everyone will always notice increasing cash flows. 
Like it's just that that is that is always always going to be a, a thing. So as long as that kind of thing happens, I know that the market will look look at it favorably, and therefore I'll get some value realization. I mean, all investing is value investing, right? Um, but that's how I'd, I'd yardstick it. I'm going to come back to all that investing value investing because you kind of threw that in as though it's a, a fait accompli and moved forward. I agree with you, by the way, but it's uh, but it's also worth pulling out. So, well, let's let's go to the other side of that then because, you know, if, that, if that's value investing, the growth investing bit is buying something now, expecting it to be much, much bigger in future, less, generally speaking, again, these are horrible generalizations, growth investors normally less academic, less mathematical, more big picture. Hey, this thing could be massive. What if Amazon is more than just the world's biggest bookstore? Some people yep. thought. Look at look at the look at the the chance it could be worth a heap more than that. Um, I it, it, like value investing. It, the irony, by the way, of course, is that if the market was efficient, neither of these things would exist as ideas. Yeah. So in in both cases, the 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 hubris, the arrogance, and largely the actual uh, for those who do it well, the revealed benefit is the market is often wrong about these things. You have mm. to disagree with the market, which I'll come back to as well. The growth investing thing of like, well, maybe it's just bigger than the market. How does that work best in that context? I think it works best because let's say, to take your example, I'm buying something that's just more or less keeping pace with inflation. It's just a very established business that's growing along. And it happens to be cheap on, a, on an average multiple kind of basis. And I can buy that to your example in the hope that at some point in time that there'll be a mean reversion with the PE multiple and I'll get a little bit of value that way. Um, the difference with growth investing is that that becomes less of a factor, mm. that multiple expansion. Right. In fact, you can actually get, in fact, this is what normally happens, is you get companies that are on ostensibly very high multiples and come way back, but the growth has been spectacular. And it's just because it's come off a low base. It's probably been a company that's been burning cash, that passes break even, that starts to scale effectively where the, the profits are growing faster than, than the revenues. And things can really, really, really get away. And that way, that way, I, I, that's why I find it appealing because even if that multiple expansion never comes, and by the way, it almost mm. always does, the market's <laughs> going to find it very hard not to notice, you know, consistent, mm. sustained mm. increase in cash flows. Um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it, it's just the way to go. For, as far as, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to, if the market happens to give it a low multiple, the growth aspect of it has been substantial enough to still account for a reasonable return. Except that neither should exist, as I said. Neither, neither the value or the growth opportunity should be I, there. I tell because, you why. I'm sorry, I tell you why. Because sorry, I missed I, I miss your point. I think even mm. when people give credit to particularly early stage growth companies, mm-hmm. it's very hard mentally for us to give it the proper credit. Now, again, it's, this mm. is going to be the exceptions that pull, prove the rule. They don't. All, not every company is an Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing, but you think, okay, yeah, that looks really good. I can see that doubling or even tripling its its earnings over the next few years, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was sort of more or less hit a steady state. What happens, and this is the example with the Amazon or the REA groups or any of the sort of the monster success stories, is it's just, it's a question of actually that annual growth being much higher and more mm. importantly, persisting for much longer than, than even the optimists mm-hmm. a- accounted for. And that's why you get the mispricing. And it feels it feels reckless in 1999 to say, oh, right. Amazon will grow at 20% for <laughs> 20 years yeah. and it will do so in this fashion. It's just like, well, that's, it's possible, but geez, that's bullish. Mm. Well, actually it turns out that's exactly what happened. And that's, that's why, you, why you get the opportunity. And frankly, you, you, could, have, you could have compressed the multiple or, or you know, a, a massive amount over that period and still done insanely well as an investor. Mm. And that's mm. what I think mm. the market often misses. It's that terminal value. 
I agree with you a lot, mate. I'm curious, though, how much... How, how In each of these cases, we have to be confident enough the market's wrong and we're right. Mm. By definition. And we are competing with tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other investors all doing the same thing, all having different views uh, or at least different expressed views, making different decisions on all of these things. Yeah. You've got to be the one who's and right. <laughs> right. So what I guess yeah. that's what I'm curious about is, is in both cases, the value case and the growth case, I have my own views, by the way, I'll share in a minute. But in the, in the value case and the growth case, where is the, where is the, where is the confidence, the source of error? Uh, you, you talked about the, 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 what actually happens, and you've given some good examples, but why are they not just cherry-picked examples? What, what is it about these things that we can methodically use to our advantage as investors mm. that other people aren't or won't? Or, or, you know, again, everyone else is out there having these same conversations, not necessarily on a podcast, but you know, fund managers and, and individual investors and everyone in between are saying, I don't know, I, but I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the guy, I'm the girl who's, mm. who's going to get this right while Paige and Phillips get it wrong. Yep. Where, how do we... How, how are we so bloody arrogant to assume we're right? But also, why are we right? Yeah, so it's, excellent, it's an excellent point. So the nature of these kinds of bets, for want of a better word, is that it's a dynamic and it's an ongoing process. It's not like we flip a coin and there's the outcome. It's like the outcome's always, the, the, the outcome is, is, is always evolving. You know what I mean? And so the thesis might be, hey, look, right. here's a small, pretty speculative company, but they've got some interesting tech. Um, but it's a bit of a lottery ticket at this stage. Maybe they won't have success. Maybe they will. Yeah. But then there's another one over here that's actually, it's past that hurdle. And now it's under the hurdle of commercialization. Actually, it's done it. It's actually, mm, it's, mm. it's producing sales. In fact, those sales are growing. I was like, well, that's cool. Still risky, still bleeding cash, but less risky than what, what it was before. And then you have a stage where it's sort of like, oh, actually now we're self-reliant self and we're profitable and we're growing. And and in all of this instance, not once has been referenced the share price. And I think that mm, is, mm. is the key in all of this to sound really mm. obvious, but it's sort of, what is my thesis here? Yeah, I'm ultimately betting that the share price is going to go higher, but my, my thesis is, is crouched more in what's the driver of that. And the driver of that is just relentlessly improving fundamentals. So you make your bet and then it turns out that after a year, management have erred, things have gone pear-shaped, it's just not as reliable. And that's going to happen all the time because you're making a, you're making an informed guess, you're making guesses, and there's going to be heaps of times where you're wrong. And that's that's kind of a point where you sort of leverage, yeah, uh, uh, you pull back a little bit. Other times, so I'll tell you an example, great example, in fact, just this week with Strawman, we spoke to uh, Sean D. Gregorio, who's the head of um, uh, F, uh, Frontier Digital Ventures (FDV), and these guys do uh, classified online businesses in developing markets. So I think REA Group. Um, I think car sales, but in Latin America and Asia and all the rest of it. And he used to, used to be mm. the MD of REA Group Australia. So he knows a thing or two sort of about it. <laughs> that classifies, yeah. Anyway, the interesting thing was is that they haven't gone into these markets and built these websites mm. and tried to win. They've actually just said, well, we know, we know what the dynamics are here. There's first, maybe second, and then there's a long line of losers. We're legging into the ones that look as though they've got, got that dominant position. Uh, sometimes they were right, sometimes they were wrong. But whenever they were right, they averaged in. In fact, they averaged up because it became a more certain proposition mm, and again and again smart. and again. And so to, to answer your question is, well, how do you know? You don't know. You can only, you can only 
work with the information that you have, but don't, don't feel as though once you've made that decision, that's it, it's cast. I have to stick to this thing for the next 10 years because I said I'm a long-term investor. It's like, no, you can, you can change your mind in this game. But the point is, is that everything I've been talking about, not once have I referenced the share price. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of like my, my bet was that this company was improving. It is improving. And in fact, if the market hasn't noticed that, fantastic. I'm going to buy some more <laughs> of that. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe, maybe you get see this a lot too. Maybe it's actually not doing that well, but the market's still enamored with it and share price is high. Maybe that's the time to sort of take, that's when those allocation decisions uh, uh, come into it. Mm. But, but it's, it's just, again, I'm repeating myself, but it's having that North Star and the North Star is the, is the fundamentals and it is the recognition that I can change my mind. But as long as that thesis holds true, in fact, you'll find that the thesis strengthens over the time. It's like, not only did I pick it, but now I've got lots of supporting evidence. This theory, which all it was, is, is really being confirmed by all the evidence. And maybe it's maybe the share price is double, but maybe I should double my allocation even because it's still cheap. It's like it's a, it's a higher price, but a lower risk reward. That, that's the right framework, I think, to think through these things. I'm going to push you one bit further, mate, and say that's what everybody says. It's a good answer. Yeah, That's why. Yeah. <laughs> well, but 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 we are, if if we're going to beat the market, we, we, you know, we can't get what everyone else is getting. So, yeah, but no one else is, is doing it. No one, not many. This is, this is Buffett always gets mm. questioned. Why? If you're so good, why aren't anyone? Isn't anyone copying you? It's like it's too simple, and it, it takes too long. Yeah. <laughs> but it but it just it just happens to work insanely well. But everyone thinks that they can do it better, and this is, it's a hubris of humanity. It, it's always been the yeah. way. It's Aesop's table, hair in the ta- uh, fable. It's the hair in the tortoise. Always, yeah. always has been, always will be. I'm convinced by that answer, but unsatisfied by it. <laughs> so, so I, I hear you. And I'm, I'm not picking. And we've got a lot of evidence point. historically to say that that's been the case, right? Well, that's but that's kind of a question, right? Everyone wants to be the next Warren Buffett, mm. and. Why, why are you, why am I, I'll, so I'll, I'll include myself in your illustrious company, but why are we better than the other guy? What, you know, no, no, one's, no one's actually saying, you know what, I'm going to invest kind of badly and ordinarily I don't really care much. I'm just going to pick some stocks and who cares, I'm going to play golf. Um, everyone, everyone's trying to put together, even the fund managers, you know, as much as we give them grief and we speak, spoke the other day about them being both, you know, having, having a tough job, but also the finance industry as a whole taking too much money out of people's pockets. No one goes to work in the funds industry and says, oh, who cares? You know, they're all trying to find the stock that's going to make them look good and get them promotion, all that kind of stuff. And if everyone's trying to do that, then no one's deliberately saying, I'm just going to mail it in or I'm going to do it, do some sort of subpar job. What do you think yeah. your, I'll make it about you for a second. What's your, why are you better in your stock picking than the other guy? Oh, it's such a great question. And, and, and the truth is not in like most circumstances, mm. you know, I'm probably being generous to myself in, in admitting that there's hopefully a, at least a few though. But I think that's the first part of an investor is sort of saying where where do I have an edge? Mm. If I, you know, it's again quoting Buffett again. But you know, if you if, <laughs> if you don't know who the patsy at the table is, it's you. Yeah, yeah. And so I think you have to I think you have to adopt an approach that's basically just content with the average, and that mm. shouldn't be anything to sneeze at. By the way, that's an incredible mm. just participating. You get your staff just for turning up in this game, right? <laughs> and just mailing it in and doing the indexing yeah. kind of stuff. You, you're going to be just fine. But if, if you are, if you do have the arrogance to think that you can do better, you want to be damn sure that you're, <laughs> you're in an area where you feel you have an edge. And so to answer your question more directly is that I think that's why I've spoken about this before. That's why I've always had the appeal towards ASX small cap companies. Yeah. I'm not competing against the big research houses and brokers and fund managers. It's too illiquid for these guys to touch. 
competing with people on hot copper is what I and look that's even that makes me sound oh I'm so much better than them but it's like, well, <laughs> I don't have to be the this is the other thing with investing I don't have to be the best I don't have to be the 80th best you know I yeah, could be yeah, the thousandth sure. best but the thousandth best and I'm still probably in the top decile of yeah. of performers you know what you know what I mean so it's kind totally. of like yep. I had, I just have to be a I don't would never claim that I am. I see something in ASX small caps, and I'm making comments here that no one else has, and I see it all, and I make all this money as a result of it. No, there's plenty of plenty of people out there that prosecute this kind of thing for the same reasons. It just it just so happens that there's enough naive money out there that that you can you can feel reasonably confident that on balance you've got the better handle on the stick. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really important. I'll, I'll I'll throw my thoughts in. I'll ask you one more question. Um, I think the it's it's I think it's temperament that makes a difference. I was going to mention um, that next yeah. for me. I I don't think I don't think I know more about any of the companies I own than anyone else could know. And to your point, you don't have to be, you have to know the most. People about having an edge. You don't have to have an edge against every single other investor. Mm. I made the point the other day about you don't have to you don't have to read you know you don't spend eighty four hours on a particular company and read the you know four hundred eighty fifth page of the seventh last annual report to know everything about the company you, know, that mm. you, you just need to know why you think that business will do well mm. and then know why you think the price at the moment is attractive enough to allow it to keep doing well mm. i think to my mind those are the two those are the two thoughts those are the two ideas uh that i think are worth keeping in mind at the same time and i think if i have an edge i think it's the ability to you mentioned patience right but it, it is actually that i think it's mm. it's you know, when everyone, when everyone hates something, I think it's a great opportunity. When people don't love something enough, I, I talk about those two, the value and the growth thing, I think that's my opportunity. You know, I, I, I think there's an opportunity for, <laughs> I'll say it for fun, uh, Kogan, just throw it out there for a laugh. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. But like it's $3 a share, right? Now, I might be entirely wrong about it, but my sense is that the market is looking at current problems and saying, this business is struggling. And I can absolutely say, yeah, they're right. But the question is, what comes next? Now, that's part of your patience thing, the time arbitrage you talked about, mate. And mm. so far, at least I've been early. And maybe, maybe I won't be, you know, maybe it'll be too, too early in the, in the fullness of time. Um, but it's also a question of, you know, where do you, where do you get those returns from? I think for mine, it's just that temperament thing of, you know, being able to say, I think this is this company. Uh, another one, JB Hi-Fi, we recommended relatively recently. Uh, I think it's too cheap. Single digit PE. Is there, is there some tough times coming? Probably, yeah. In five years' time, I look back and go, but still, JB was at single digit. Like it was, it, how cheap was it? You know, mm. it, it it allowed for that and more, and and yet it still recovered. So that idea of the fullness of time, the long term thing you talked about, both in terms of the investment horizon and the ability to be patient enough to let it happen, to my mind, are, are two two particular ones. Mate, um, last one I want to ask you about is the special situations, the hidden value, the the whatever. Um, I don't even know if there's. I don't even know if I have an answer for this one. I guess I just want to raise it as a, as a. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll give you my thoughts and you can jump in. I think for investors, this takes a bit of extra time, but if you can find an opportunity where the market is misunderstanding a company outright, they've just got. And, and I guess when I say misunderstanding, I mean you know people aren't stupid, right? It's not like no one knows this either. To your point, but the total dollar value of trades or, or of ownership, it doesn't have to. You just got to be on the right side of the trade. So, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to be smart with everybody. Just realize that something is, is an opportunity for a business 
and for an investment that maybe the rest of the market hasn't yet priced in. So not no one knows, just it's not priced in. And I mentioned M2 and I mentioned Vocus. They're probably two that most obviously come to mind. But there are areas where the market just doesn't kind of, doesn't quite get it. You know, it doesn't quite understand. I put Amazon in that case, actually, funnily enough, as well as being a growth company, because the growth of Amazon Web Services, the ability to scale outside that, or a company like Google, um, to use a couple of US examples, where Google has so many different things going on right now. You know, they bought YouTube and they, um, they've, they've done search. They've got other, you know, this, the Google Labs thing going on and something will pop out of that at some point, maybe, or maybe it won't. Uh, Apple was a great example with the iPad and, and Watch and other things. Um, businesses just have that optionality. You kind of, you can, you can give them some upside and say, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen. Macquarie is another great example. You know, what's, what's Macquarie's core business? It's the turning of money into more money. And I, that sounds stupid, but, you know, I, I can't tell you what Macquarie's going to be doing in a, a crust in five years' time. What I do know is they they are managing and, and remunerating their staff well enough that those staff will find the opportunities, in my view. I don't own those shares, by the way. So there's that kind of stuff where you don't, it's just it's just kind of, you know, realizing there's more there than meets the eye. That something, again, focus laying cable and making money for them eventually. Or a business that, another one maybe is one that goes from loss to profit. You know, a loss making business is missing off people's radar because it's, it's losing money. All of a sudden, you just get that little bit of operating leverage and now it's making a bit of profit, then it's making a lot of profit because, you know, um, if you're on a, a relatively low net margin, a little bit of extra sales means a lot of extra bottom line mm. profit. There are just those things where a cursory glance, I don't mean cursory in a critical way, but where the market's looking at just the basics, show me the sales, show me the profit, show me the growth. Okay, that's all I can see. Digging a little bit deeper, there's some there's some value there. That's where all the value is. It's, it's, it's I mean, there's two parts to that. There's, there's being right, but that's useless to you if no one eventually sees that you're right. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. You know, in, in that case, yep. you're kind of wrong, you know? Um, so yeah, it's it's just, it's about it's about recognize or trying to recognize what will eventually become obvious because yeah. by the time it's obvious, it's too late. And I think a lot of the time people see, they, people have give some credit to a lot of people in the market. Mm-hmm. They see these mm-hmm. things out there, but they then they try and get a little bit too clever. Oh, I'll just wait until the market reacts and- Yes, you know, I'll do yeah. this and I'll do that. And it's just like one of the interesting features of, of any good share price performance or asset performance is that the, um, I'm going to muck up the exact stats, but something like, you know, 80% of the gains happen on 20% of the days. Yeah, right. So whenever you're out of the market, you miss, yeah. you only have you yeah. only have to miss a small number of days to miss a very significant right. part of the upside. Right. Um, so, so I think people try and play games like that. Where my my approach is, like, I'm happy to buy if it t- turns out to be too early. I have to wait for a while, or it drops twenty percent after I buy. It was usually the way. But by the way, some of my best investments of all in that camp just did nothing mm-hmm. for ages, went down. And but that's if if you're if you're seeing things correctly. And again, all <laughs> of the all of the markers on or milestones along the road are just sort of being checked off. It's like yeah, it's a good thing. That's a, you 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 will eventually see that recognised. Last just point for just me, earlier mate, than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, last, last point for me, I suppose, is just a reminder, we say this all the time, but it's a portfolio game. And you've kind of alluded to that already in some of your answers through this conversation is- That's so um, important. No, no, you know, Buffett's bought businesses that have gone broke. Um, you know, just, it's, a, it's a throwaway line, but it's true. And, and just remembering that, you know, you don't have to be right all the time. And it goes both ways, I think. Not that you don't have to be, you won't be. Like, well, that's true. Period. I, I, like, I guess what I mean is, to- you know, don't wait for that degree of certainty. It's yeah. probably where I say you don't have to be. Because, like, well, this might go wrong. I, I've, I've said before this, this to you before, maybe we should have a, a therapy session for me on air one day. But, um, you know, my, 
my some of my biggest failings have been avoiding opportunities that are attractive opportunities because of an unknown risk. And I think I've probably overweighted the downside. You know, when I, when I missed those, Afterpay was a great example, right? Um, I, now I could, I could have been right about Afterpay, by the way, but but as as an example. Uh, what if there's a recession? What if bad debts are higher than we thought? What if, what if, what if? Those things are all true as the shares went from $2 to 150 bucks, right? Now, at some point, the risk and reward, I, I, I think it's fair to say at this point, I got that wrong, just straight out wrong. Now, mm-hmm. after it could have gone well, I'm uh, sorry, it could have gone terribly. I might've been exactly right. I said before, Tesla looks like a genius in investment, but if there'd been a recession in the first two years of Tesla's life, it, it, it goes broken, Elon is an afterthought. So, you know, circumstances happen, but I guess I just want to make the point about the portfolio thing of, you know, know that you, you need to be roughly right more often than not. Mm. And that's a, that sounds like a really vague statement, except that's exactly what investing is. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's probably Roughly right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's uh, so you know if you're right all the time, but know what you're doing and know why you're doing it and make sure you do it enough times to let that, those odds play out. Yeah, I would also add it's it's not the crime, it's the cover-up that does the damage yes, to, yeah. to you here. So it's like, yeah. you know, you're going you're gonna to end up investing money in companies that don't mm. perform that well. But it's, it's yeah. when you try and dig yourself out of that hole, you start making a bunch of irrational decisions, like putting good money after bad or just, think, mm-hmm. you know, yes, even just leaving yes, it yes. there half the time. Can be <laughs> yeah. a, you yeah. know, it's like, okay, you got it wrong. But that, that, yeah. this is probably one of the core skills of investing is like, okay, you, you build up a, a case. We like to use the word investment thesis because it sounds smarter. <laughs> but you build up an investment thesis or an investment case. And mm-hmm. then it's just a matter of looking at the proper markers of I'm right or I'm wrong. It's not the share price that's going to tell you I'm right or wrong. I mean, hopefully, eventually, the share price will confirm your rightness, but, but that's, that's going to be a poor guide. If, if, you're, yes. if, if you're keeping your eye on the key metrics that matter, maybe it's you see it as the annual recurring revenue growth or some kind of cost discipline or cash flow positivity, whatever it, whatever it happens to be, those markers, and they're only going to come out four times a year or so, you know, kind mm-hmm. of um, at, at best. And... As long as you do that, I think you you can you can stay on the straight and narrow. Perfect, love it, mate. I'm going to ask you a very big favour. Will you come back on Christmas Day and do a Marbag episode with me? I think I think I already have. Well, now you're just destroying the whole thing. <laughs> but I will. I'll, I'll be there. Still so going to work with fools, but because it's Christmas plan, I'm not going to be too harsh. I'll see you Christmas Day. Fool on. Merry Christmas. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.